And we are again in John chapter 14 this morning. I'm going to begin reading here, and if you would all stand, please, for the reading of the Scripture. John chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. Our Scripture runs through verse 17, but I'm going to read through verse 23 here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whoever, excuse me, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. May the Lord bless his, his word, and you may be seated. As I said, we're going to read, uh, or we're going to particularly deal with verses 12 through 17 this morning. But I want to remind you that this passage that is before us began back in the 13th chapter, verse 31. We call this the Upper Room Discourse. And it runs completely uh, through the 14th chapter, ending there with the 31st verse. And this is the first part of the Lord's uh, conversation with his disciples, his final conversation, his final instructions before his arrest and crucifixion and his that subsequent departure. So this part of the discourse was given at the table when, where Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper that we practice even already this morning. the uh, John does not deal with the institution of the Lord's Supper, uh, but he had his reasons for not doing so. But anyway, when uh, his, his focus here is upon this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, they're at, that ta at the table there. And it ends there with the, the words there at the end of the 31st verse, Arise, let us go from here. Jesus then continued that discourse as they walked 
to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' revelation here in this text before us was that he was going to leave them to return to the Heavenly Father. And that truth, that revelation to them, compounded with the threat of the Jews' determination to put him to death, has produced some troubled hearts in the disciples. They're anxious, they're fearful, they're very upset. And Jesus knows that and he wants to deal with that issue. So then the 14th chapter begins, let not your hearts be troubled. You don't need to be worried. You don't need to be anxious. Paul said, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. We're not to be fearful. Fear not. Don't be troubled. Why? He, Jesus said, I'm fully in charge of everything. I know what's going on. I have full understanding about every detail of what is taking place now and how you're going to be affected by it. Rather, what you do, and there's this is our... This is our uh, Instruction from God. Trust God. Trust in me also. I believe those are commands. They're imperatives in the Greek. Trust God. Stop leaning on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. This is what we read in the Proverbs. Trust Him. He will not fail you. He will not disappoint you. And while you're trusting God, trust me too. For I'm God come in the flesh. Trust me. So this admonition then was followed by three these three incredible announcements. The first one was that he was the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And as I pointed out, I believe way here is the focal point, and then the, there are two subordinate things that support that, which is truth and life. Jesus is the way to God. He doesn't just point the way to God. He is the way to God. You can't get to the Father but by me. Jesus is not standing here saying, there's the way, walk you in it. He said, I am the way. Just like the resurrection. I know that uh, Lazarus is going to be raised at the end there. No, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Do you trust me in this? He is the truth. He's God. God is truth. And he's the life. As the Father has life in himself, so he has given the Son to have life in himself. 
So you want to get to the Father? I'm the way. Because I'm the truth and I am the life. No one goes to the Father but by me. Second, Jesus declared that he was equal to God there in the 10th verse. I and the Father are one. You, uh, you want to know the Father? You want to see the Father? Because it was a re in response to the, the question, show us the Father and that will suffice us. Have I been so long time with you and you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And then third, and here is even a more incredible statement, we have Jesus declaring that he is the one uh, that, excuse me, that the one who trusts him will do the works that he did. He'll do the works that he did. And it's this last declaration that, that we're going to examine in the message here this morning. So because of this announcement there, there's two questions here that uh, surface. The first question is, as Jesus stated it, that believers would do the works that he did. The question here is, how is it possible for the average Christian to do the things that Jesus did in his earthly walk? And immediately our minds go to the miracles that he performed, touching people and curing them of their leprosy and their blindness and causing their ears to hear again, their, their lame feet to, to walk again the dead to rise again. And, and immediately we're thinking to ourselves, I've never caused anybody to, that was lame to walk. I've never opened a deaf ear. I've caused a few deaf ears, but I haven't, <laughs> I haven't opened any. So, so here, that's a question. And uh, I'm, I'm, in stating this, I'm not including the frauds that have lied their way into the truth, into the church, excuse me, with, the, with false miracles. I'm not including those people at all. But here's another thing. He further states that his followers would do greater works than these. That's a real head-scratcher. No one who has ever read the scriptures would suggest that he could outdo Jesus in the works that Jesus did. I mean, think about the very last miracle, the raising of Lazarus. Greater works than these shall he do because I go to my Father? Well, there's the key. There's the key to it right there because I go to the Father. So the... We, we look at that there and we think, well, I, I've never multiplied bread to feed the hungry. And I've never raised Lazarus from the grave. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The issue here is not about the nature of the works, whether they're miraculous or not. The question is, what are the works? That is, what is their purpose? 
why did Jesus do the works that he did? And then the next question is, the works that Jesus expects of me that he said I would do in his absence and greater works than those that he that I would do in his absence. What is the purpose of those works? And I believe that uh, they are around this kingdom purpose and they have to do with his will. Am I doing the will of God? Jesus came to do the will of his Father. So the nature of some of the works that Jesus did because of the will of his Father was miraculous. We'll we'll touch upon that here in a minute. But the question then, the second question here is, how can we live in the reality of this declaration? How can we live in the in the reality of this declaration? And he also gives us the key there too. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. So let's look first of all here at the uh, little background to understand this upper room discourse. So first of all, the promises, these promises that Jesus made must be understood in the light of the dawn of the gospel age and its principles as outlined in Jesus' teaching. What Jesus is informing his disciples about and telling them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust God, trust also in me. A new thing is coming into being. The old is passing away. All things are going to become new. And it begins with my death and resurrection. I'm going to the Father. And one of the things that I think is very important for us to understand is that when Jesus tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled, he promised them. He said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus was absolutely certain what he was doing and how what was going to take place in the future there in verses 2 and 3. And so his first, his first statement to them was to assure them in their present anxiety by explaining to them that he was the heavenly bridegroom. He doesn't say so in so many words, but the, but the context there is very clear. I am the heavenly bridegroom. And I am I have chosen you for myself as the heavenly bride. <clears throat> now I am going away to the father's house because that was the that was how they did it. The bridegroom was betrothed to the bride in a ceremony. Then the bridegroom left the bride and went back to his father's house and he could be gone for as long as a year. While he was gone, they each prepared themselves for the, for the marriage. And the, the husband, the bridegroom, and he was called the husband, prepared a place for her in the father's house. So when wedding time came, he would return to get her. 
and take her to the father's house where he had prepared that place. And this is what Jesus is saying here. And so let, let, let me share with you here from, from uh, Isaiah chapter 62. And this is a powerful truth here, beginning with verse number 1. Zion here speaks of Zion, the chosen people of God, which is the bride of Christ. And of her the Lord declared that he would not keep silent until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Think of that. See, Zion is the people of God. And she, that's the bride. In fact, in, the, in Isaiah 62, I'll show you that. The, so the, we, the result is set forth here begin, uh, with verses 2 to 5. Listen to this. The nations shall see your righteousness and kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Christian. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her. Notice. Her, Zion, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Wow, what a promise. So new things taking place. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So now this plan is coming into reality as Jesus came to earth to gather his followers, his apostles, who would then form the foundation of the church, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. And from them, the message of the gospel would spread to the ends of the, of the world. So during the absence of the Lord, his people would do a glorious work in gathering his bride out of all the nations of the earth to build a great kingdom to which the king and the bridegroom would return. And the prophetic purpose then of the Jews' conflict with, uh, with, uh, G with uh, Jesus was announced by the high priest, their Caiaphas, who prophesied that, that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also to gather in one the children of God scattered abroad. That's part of the new thing. Israel is now expanded. It's no longer just the seed of Abraham. In fact, it's not even the seed of Abraham. 
It's the remnant within the seed of Abraham that are regarded as the people of God. You who fear the Lord, uh, that's the ones that are described in Scripture. So here, Caiaphas made it very clear that Jesus would die for the nation. And not that nation only, but also for the people of God uh, and to be gathered in as the children of God who would be where we're scattered abroad. Thus, we read there in Zephaniah chapter 3, God says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame, and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will get I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. That's verses eighteen through twenty of Zephaniah three. So let me just ask a simple question. Are we right now regarded <laughs> with praise and renown in the earth? No. We're reproached. But the day is coming when he said, I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes. So secondly here, the works that Jesus promised his followers would, would uh, that they would do then would involve then the gathering promised in these Old Testament texts. I'm going away to the Father. That's going to make it possible for you to do the works that I do. And, these, and there are going to be greater works than these because that I'm going away to the Father. And, and he, I believe the suggestion there is his going away then would allow for the Spirit of God to come and, in, and indwell the hearts of every one of those men. So I first of all hear these, these works do not necessarily involve miracles. They don't rule out miracles either. God's still the miracle working God. God can do whatever he wants to do. There are those who are very adamant about the fact that there are no more miracles to be done. I disagree. He may not be working miracles among us today like he did in the past, but that's because his purpose is not to do that. According to Scripture, miracles were purpose, were purpose for special identification. For example, Jesus Miracles identified him as the Messiah. So listen to this word, which is Isaiah 35, verses 3 to 6. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, isn't that interesting? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense. He will come and save you. 
Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's basically what he was telling the disciples there in John 14. You were an you were an outcast in the world, but and you have an anxious heart. But be strong, don't fear, because the Lord's going to come with vengeance. That's Jesus Christ. He's coming with vengeance. He said, "Doesn't look like it now, but it's coming, though. It is coming. The plan of God is being worked out. He will come and He will save you." And to identify his coming, the eyes of the blind are opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leaps like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sings for joy. Then, second here, these works were possible only because Jesus returned to the Father. See, this, this simple statement, because I go to the Father, is pregnant with glorious truth. He was going to the Father. It, that was required because of his obedience to the purpose for which he came. And, to, and which was to be the perfect sacrifice for sins so that God could forgive and redeem his people. God can't have this glorious new creation without first redeeming sinful people and giving them new life. And Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice to accomplish that. And so thus, after finishing this necessary task, Jesus would be raised to glory over de- and victory over death. He would be, uh, which is the great enemy there, death. He would uh, conquer sin and then he would ascend to the right hand of the Father where he would sit and rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's where he is today. He is, he is he's not going to rule and reign. He is ruling and reigning. Jesus is the Lord. And he's the Lord of his church. And he's directing her operation on earth from his heavenly throne. He promised the disciples in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So how will he do this? He's called his servants to that task. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Then you're part of his army on earth. You're part of the people of God whom he is using to do this work to build that church. It's going to be done. God has too much invested in it. For it to fail. It will be done. 
So the kingdom is here now. I've mentioned that. I've emphasized that again and again. I, I'm not waiting for a millennial kingdom to come. It's here now. Jesus is ruling and reigning now. And it is accomplishing what he in, intended for it to accomplish and planned for it to do so, so that one day he would return to claim his bride for himself. So we read there in Revelation chapter nine, nineteen, excuse me, verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We're in the period where the bride is making herself ready. Why, it was granted to her to be clothed, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then it's de described here and defined. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, right now the Spirit of God is at work in the people of God to sanctify them to righteousness and holiness so that their works for God done in the will of God will be righteous deeds which describe her heavenly attire. That's why you have weddings even today and what is the choice of the bride? A white dress. I wonder how many brides stand before their marriage altar in their beautiful white dress and realize that this is the tradition that has been established that reflects the fact that a heavenly bridegroom is going to come and get his bride who is wearing Righteous deeds. So they, that, that raises the question. Am I wearing righteous deeds? What are the deeds that I have that I can show before God that His Spirit is working in me? So that takes us to the second point here, and that's the requirements of believers for this work, uh, uh, the, to, to do the works of Christ, or the ability then to be able to do the works of Christ. So first of all, for his servants to do the work of Christ, the, those works that Christ did, they and here's the point, it's working in obedience to the Father to redeem a people and to build the kingdom of God on earth. That's the works that he did. Not necessarily miracles. But they are those works that were done in obedience to the Father. In order to redeem a people. And build the kingdom of God here on earth. His followers then have to do. First of all trust the Lord. They have to trust him and his Father in full surrender to the will of God. Do you trust him? 
Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Yet, I find Christians always upset and fretting and anxious and troubled. I want to explain why. Because your focus is on the wrong thing. If you're upset about things, it's because your focus is on the wrong thing. Trust me, Jesus said. Trust God, trust in me also. And then he said in verse number 12, Whoever believes that his trusts in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. So the first thing, the first thing that, that every Christian ought to think about is, if I'm concerned about something, if I'm anxious or troubled about something, I need to take that before the Lord and ask Him, what's going on here? Am I not trusting you? Because you can't do the works that, that Jesus wants you to do if you're not trusting Him. Because he said, whoever believes in me, that is trust in me, will do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. So the question is, are you fully committed to Christ? Trusting him without reservation. That brings us then to this. For his servants to do the work of Christ, they must be fully dependent on the divine resources to accomplish that work. Because I go to the Father. As I said, that, that, that little sentence there is pregnant with meaning. And part of the, this going to the Father was that he would provide then for the believer everything he needed to do the will of God. So the first thing here is he, they will be given whatever they need to accomplish his will. And the one powerful means of that is asking. Prayer is simply asking. And the answer to prayer is receiving. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So here again, we, we, we have to ask the question, what are the parameters that govern the understanding of this seemingly wide open promise? A lot of times people come to verses like that and they say, Oh, Cadillac! Lord, give me a Cadillac! Why don't he didn't give it to me? What? I don't. This this verse is all wrong. I asked for this and I asked for that and I asked for the other thing and God didn't give any of them to me. So he's a liar. Really? If he wants you to have a Cadillac, you'll get one. But the question is, what are the parameters behind this? And that we, you just can't take that verse out of its context. You have to understand it in its context. And what's the context here? 
I'm going away to the Father so that the work of God can be accomplished through you. Now, to, to accomplish that work, you need provision. How do you get the provision? You ask. My Heavenly Father will give it to you in my name. That is, in my authority. You don't ask Christ for things that he is not, de not determined to give to you. Because how does what you're asking for fulfill his purpose in gathering a people for his name out of every na tongue, tribe, nation, and kindred and nation? See, there's the question. I'm going to the Father. You guys are not going to be left alone. I'm making full provision for you to do the works that I did and greater works than these. There's, a, there, there's another one in Mark chapter 11. This is one that uh, is, to me, is even more eye-opening than the... Than than this one in John 14. But let me read this one to you. Mark chapter 11 verses 22 to 24. Jesus said, Have faith in God. Here again. Notice there. Have faith in God. Trust God. Truly. He said, I, I, I'm, I am the truth. I'm giving you here a truth statement. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and it do, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Wow. Okay, Lord. I want Pike's Peak to be moved over here into the Eastern Plains so I can see it from my living room. And I am going to believe it. I am believing. I am believing. Uh, nothing's happening. <laughs> nothing's happening. Okay, God, I just doubt, I doubt, you didn't, you didn't tell me the truth here. Here again, what is the setting here? And the setting is, in these last days before Jesus is going to go to the cross, he's just come back, or he, they, they were going over to Bethany, and while they went, it, it's it's not even the season for figs, and he went over to this fig tree and looked for figs. We don't look for figs when it's not it's the fig season, but when he didn't find any figs on the tree, he cursed the tree. Is Jesus being arbitrary here? Some, you know, being kind of petty? No. What is the setting here? He's giving an illustration. Israel is the fig tree. 
And he's looking for fruit on the fig tree. And he's finding no fruit. Did God somehow fail in his work with Israel? No. Well, what's the thing? God starts out with Israel and Israel fails to prove and to show the failure of the human being to do the work of God. He gave them commandments to keep and they couldn't keep the commandments. How can we keep commandments? He made expectations of them to be his witness in the world and they failed to be his witness in the world. They were selfish. Jesus gave the the parable there of the uh, vineyard and how this man had a vineyard and he let it out to uh, servants and went away to be king. And then he, when it was time for for there to be fruit, he sent uh, messengers to get his do he owns the vineyard he, sh- he should get a percentage of the harvest but they beat his servants some of them they killed and ch- others they chased away so then finally he says i'll send them my son surely they will respect my son and they said ah here's the son let's put him to death and then the vineyard will be ours The heir of the vineyard will be dead and we'll have the vineyard for ourselves. uh, So then Jesus asked those rulers, what will the king do to these men? They said, he'll, he'll come and put these men to death and get some new ones to take care of his vineyard. (laughs) Put those servants to death and get some new ones. And then they said, oh, he's talking about us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, that's the same thing with, this, with, the, with the fig tree. So when the disciples came back the next morning, crossed over the Kidron back into, the, into Jerusalem, they looked over there to the fig tree and it's all withered, <laughs> dead. And Peter said, yeah, there he, there's the fig tree you cursed. And it's cursed. And then Jesus, so that's when Jesus gave them this, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, who, whoever says to this mountain, is he, to, is he to talking about mountain moving here? Yeah. But what kind of mountains? Spiritual mountains. You're going to do what Israel failed to do. Because you trust in me. And now I'm going to give you the resources to be able to do that. So whatever you ask in prayer, you will. Re- and if you believe it, you trust in me about it, you will receive it. It will be yours. Do you See, this is what it's all about. And the parameters are... How does what you're asking for advance the kingdom? Not you, not your life, not your comfort, although some things may be related to that. Because God wants you to be, have all your needs met, 
You live on the earth. You need your needs met. So you can ask God for those needs to be met. Paul said, made it very clear that he's going to provide for everything you need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But what is the, what's the parameter here? As a servant of Jesus Christ doing the will of God in advancing the kingdom of God on this earth, building his church. So due to the fact then that we're basically selfish and sinful, we're prone to take verses like this and argue that if one would just believe God, He'll give him whatever he desires and God's obligated to answer that prayer. And especially if you ask it in Jesus' name. I don't don't necessarily think it's wrong to end a prayer in Jesus' name, but you need to understand what that means. In His authority. The King's authority. So how is my... The thing that I'm asking going to advance the king the kingdom and will the king give me authority to ask for it? God is bound to give whatever he has committed himself to provide. Including moving mountains. but not because you're of a selfish whim on your part. And see, sadly, that's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is based on this idea. God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life and He wants you to be wealthy and prosperous and He wants you to enjoy all the best things that you can. That is selfish. And uh, it's no wonder that uh, those churches are filled with people because they're sinful and selfish and want God to give them Cadillacs. So that brings me to this, and we'll close here. They, They will be given a new helper. He says, and I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper. Helper. I do like the the translation of the English Standard Version here using this term helper, who uh, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. You know the spirit. For he dwells with you. There is a real sense in which the disciples who walked with Jesus had the presence of the Holy Spirit but not in the same way that they will have it when he leaves. And so Jesus adds this, and will be in you. What's the difference of with and in? That's, that's one of those theological brain teasers. They had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was with them all in, through the, the saints throughout the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you that here just in a second. But uh, the one here called helper 
And it's, the tra it's a translation of the Greek term parakletos. Para, which means with or alongside. And kalitos or kalos, which means to call. To call. In fact, uh, the, you can hear the word call in there. Kletos. Call. Kaleo. Kaleo. One called alongside. So it's been variously translated advocate, comforter, or counselor. None of these translations work. The King James fails miserably here because it translates it comforter. Now here's why. It's not because the King James translators use the wrong word. It's that our modern, it's our modern understanding of that word has changed. When the King James translation was translated... It used the term comforter, which comes from the Latin, the root of which means with strength come forth. With strength. So that word actually is a good word in the King James, if you understand it in King James Day. Come forth with strength. Thus Jesus here argued that for him to physically leave them would enable then the Holy Spirit to indwell them and to enable them with strength to do God's work. Divine power. Oh, I long for God to work with divine power. Thus Paul argues... There in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Be continually filled with the Spirit. Be ye being continually. I think that's how the Greek should... Greek has it. Be ye being continually filled with the Spirit. And the word filled here is the idea of controlled. So that's why, that's why Paul said, uh, Don't be drunk with wine, wherein is it in his accent. Excess, excuse me, but be filled with the Spirit or controlled by the. And like alcohol controls you, let the Spirit control you. Spirit controlled. And I believe there's a, there, here, here is a very definite connection with the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. This we find, learn in the book of Hebrews. And, and it goes clear back to Numbers 11. Where we read here that the Lord, what the Lord did for Moses when he was overwhelmed with the burden of leading the people, God called Moses to lead them out of the out of the Egyptian bondage into the wilderness and then take them into the promised land, and that was a job that Moses couldn't really do. So the Lord says there in Numbers eleven. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And that's what happened. 
So here we have Moses, the mediator of, an old, of the Old Covenant. Now Jesus, as mediator of the New Covenant, is making the same promise that God made to Moses. I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on me and I'm going to put it on you. In order then that you may bear the burden with Christ. That's the purpose of it. Interestingly, there were two of the elders, Eldad and Medad, that remained in the camp that didn't go out to the tent of meeting. However, the, the scripture says the Spirit of God rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. That's how That was the evidence, see? They're prophesying. Remember when uh, the Spirit of God came upon on, uh, Saul, he prophesied with the prophets. So the, the saying was, is Saul also among the prophets? What was that for? It was a sign that God put his spirit on Saul to do the work of being king over Israel. And the evidence of his, was his prophesying. So here are these two, Eldad and Medad, and they didn't go out to the camp, but God regarded them as elders. And therefore they received the Spirit and they began to prophesy in the camp. And Joshua was a little bit concerned about that and he said, forbid them, stop them. And Moses' response to them uh, there in, in the 29th verse of that 11th chapter, he says, are you jealous for my sake? And then notice this what he said. Would not would that all the Lord's people were prophets? That the Lord would put his spirit on them. Not just the elders, all the Lord's people. And that's the promise that Joel makes there in chapter two, verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And we read that that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Let me ask you. Are you being enabled and controlled by His Spirit to do His will in accomplishing His purpose as servants of the King to establish the kingdom of God on earth, calling a people out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and kindred for His glory? So are you loving and obeying the Savior? If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. What was his commandment? My commandments, his command. Trust God, trust in me too. Do you love me? Yeah. Then keep my commandments. What's my commandment? Trust me. And you will be filled with the Spirit and will be doing the work 
that I did and greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Then you can ask whatever you need and I'll answer it and give it to you. So then are we fully surrendered and committed to the work of the gospel in this kingdom age? Are we then truly followers of Jesus Christ? Father, I thank you for this powerful passage that we have looked at here this, this morning. What amazing truth. We are your servants. We have been called out by your grace. We have been given your Holy Spirit. We know the word. We know the truth. We can read the scriptures and know the truth. Because Jesus, you are the truth. And you are the only way to the Father. And you are our life. Oh, may we understand the glorious privileges we have in our relationship to you and trust you in them. And then to see the work of God accomplished in and through us for the glory of Jesus Christ. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name.